Would you please join me in our prayer for illumination? Let us pray. O risen Christ, open us to the power of your resurrection. As we hear it proclaimed anew this day, that we too might rise to new life in you. Amen. Our scripture today comes from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Hear these words. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if, if you have carried him away, please tell me, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do, do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to your God and to my God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I, um, apologies. Um, some of you may know that on Wednesday, when I was polishing my Easter sermon, um, I had had a cough for about four weeks. And I decided that was the day I was going to go back to the doctor and figure out what was going on. Had a doctor's appointment at 2 o'clock. Conveniently spiked a fever at noon. 
<laughs> went to the doctor at two, didn't want to talk about my, he didn't want to talk about my cough, wanted to give me a rapid strep test, and it was positive. So in some ways you could say I've been in prayer and contemplation for my life uh, while I uh, worked the fever off and everybody on staff uh, worked it like a fever uh, to bring about Easter. Um, I am th so thankful, cannot tell you how much hard work um, uh, Josh Lemons has put into uh, organizing. Um, he uh, um, uh, preached uh, Monday, Thursday, because uh, I was supposed to, um, and then also preached Good Friday, uh, all of which uh, great sermons. Um, and so I cannot tell you how important resurrection is, <laughs> whether it's um, from death to life or from strep to standing in front of you now. So when I was a kid, I was not overly athletic. I was not the child that was going to be the cornerback or the quarterback or the first base person. You have already heard that I was a stunning tuba player in high school. Now, when I was younger, we participated in a, a variety of kind of father-son activities, and I can remember uh, from being five or six going, and there were tons of activities where you could uh, earn ribbons, and some of them were participation, and others were actually competitive. There was always the climb the wall, and there was always the uh, three-legged race, and there was always, right, you can think back to some of these things, who can throw the football the farthest, the baseball the farthest, right? Well, the one that always got me was the um, sprint race. It was not far, maybe from here to the back of the sanctuary, and we all lined up, easily 30 or 40 kids, all of the same age, all the boys ran all together and the girls ran all together, and I can remember, always wanted to be in the middle of that big line. And they'd, you know, just like you see on TV, or, or maybe not, um, there'd be somebody who'd say, Red, on your marks, get set, Go! And oh my gosh, enthusiasm is one thing that I've got in spades. And so I was running enthusiastically just as hard as I could. But then some of you know I have a little bit of a tendency to get distracted. It's not something that came along in adulthood. I've had it my whole life. And so I'd get out there, I'd be in front, and I'd start looking around. And I, I'm in front. I'm going to win this thing. And then I get so excited that I start slowing down because I'm so impressed with the view. And then before long, I end up in the middle of the pack. It's still finishing, still feeling proud. I can remember my dad. I mean, this was like every year we'd go to these father-son games. And I can remember a four-year-old out in front, you know, didn't make it. Five-year-old out in front, you know, six out in front. I mean, it was every year until I was about 10 or 11. And then I was too cool to do those things, right? Have you ever found yourself running? Running from something? Running to something? What are those moments of running? Now, some of you run intentionally every morning for exercise. I, I run if there's a wild animal behind me, right? It's not necessarily you. So I can remember um, very specific moments of running. Scripture talks about running in a number of places. 
One of them has to do with uh, King David's son is killed in battle. Now, if you're the king, that makes your son a prince, right? And the commander who was responsible for that battle wanted to send word back to King David. Now, kings aren't very happy when the battle doesn't go their way, and they're less happy, just like you and I would be, if their child had been killed in battle. And so uh, um, the, the commander of that uh, um, area, he went ahead, Joab, he went ahead and sent a foreigner to tell the king. Now there's some tricky politics here, right? Because if he sends one of his soldiers and the king gets angry and kills the soldier, it drops down not only just a really good prince, but now a really good soldier and a fast runner. But there was a, a friend of the prince. Um, his name was Ahimazad. And he was the son of the high priest, and he had this uh, deep respect for the king and this deep respect uh, for letting David know. And so he said, no, send me. And Joab said, no, I've already sent that foreigner. It's all good. Don't worry about it. And Ahimaaz has says, no, I want to go. And so leaving later than the foreigner who was running, he runs faster uh, through uh, the area, gets to the king, and tells the news. There's also a story about Elijah the prophet. Uh, shortly after he had that big face-off with all the prophets of Baal, uh, he finds himself in a particular place. Uh, he looks around. Jezebel is angry as anything with him. And uh, he goes to tell the king to get in his chariot because there is a storm coming. This makes sense to me because a chariot, I guess, is kind of like a convertible and you really don't want the leather seats to get messed up, right? And so he sends the king in the chariot and heads off home. And then Elijah, Elijah decides to run. Now, some scripture says he ran in front of the king as a herald. Others say he ran the back roads. Regardless, it was a 14-mile cross-country run and Elijah arrived before the chariot, which is like saying I could run faster than a Corvette. Running is something that happens in the Bible. Our scripture passage today is a story of the women going to prepare the body of a relative for burial. Mary and the women decide to step in and spare Jesus's mother, Mary, from having to suffer that task of preparing her only son for burial. And so they go to the tomb but, but there they, they hear and they see, and they are sent back. As they come back, they tell the men. I always love the fact that John 20, verses 1 through 18, is part of every lectionary year. It reminds us that the women got the news first and then told the rest of us. So Peter and John, they take off on a race, running, if you will, I don't think Mary said, on your mark, get set, go. But when you read scripture, they are running, and who gets there first seems to matter to them. It makes sense if you were part of that, uh, that, that triumphant, that three group, uh, th three disciples who Jesus seems to take on all the cool um, uh, uh, field trips, right? You remember James, uh, John, and Peter. They get to go to the Mount of Transfiguration. They get to uh, see all of the exciting and interesting things. And so James and John, or it was just John and Peter, they cut off and they race to get there first. Now, this is also the same group of men that would have argued about who gets to sit 
on the right or the left of Jesus when he comes into his power. So if you were wondering if there was a little bit of jockeying for power, I think this could also be that expression right there. And so they run. And they run in such a way that John takes time to tell us that he won. I just want you to stop for a moment. Of all the things you might think about doing on Easter, maybe remember when you were a kid and you know, would you have raced to get ready for Easter service and then bragged about it to your parents? It just seems like a strange, awkward moment we're talking about the salvation of the world and the resurrection of God's son. And John's trying to settle scores in a foot race. But I want you to pay attention to here is as they arrive, as they arrive, they find the stone rolled away. Uh, when they walk into the tomb, I don't know, I, I would imagine that they would want or expect to see um, a robbery scene. Yeah, a crime scene where, where grave robbers have broken in and stolen Jesus' body and the valuables. But when they walk in, it looks as if someone has just gotten up from rest. The, the grave clothes are folded on uh, the pier. Um, everything is, is, I imagine, um, the room is set in such a way as if my mother would have preferred me to do when I was a child by making up my bed. And so they walk in and here, the only thing that's missing is the person who has woken up from the sleep. And then, of course, we have Mary's interactions with Jesus, who we know is Jesus. Mary, overwhelmed with grief, is outside the tomb. And as she cries, she mistakes the risen Jesus for the gardener. And at that moment, she finally replies, looks at him and says, teacher, and then she comes to her senses and realizes it's the Lord. I wanna pull three uh, vignettes out of this story. I think they talk about ourselves. I think scripture always informs us of how we uh, find ourselves in these moments of hopelessness and hope, in these moments where we are running from something or running to something that scripture not just tells us what happened, but also helps us understand what happens inside of us as well. The first one is John believes. I mean, John's a little annoying. I just wanna say, as a younger sibling, uh, and my older sibling got straight A's all the time, we can go into all the ways in which she's so perfect and I'm not, but that's for another context. It would be awkward to say it now. But John is, in John's gospel, John is always the example of the faithful response. John is always the example of how it should be done with no hesitation. There is this sense that he doesn't have to think it through. He doesn't have to logic it out. He sees and he believes. I mean, really, if this was somebody that you worked with, it might be somebody that you would want to trip occasionally because good things shouldn't happen that often to that person all the time. If they tripped, it wouldn't be that bad. If you don't laugh, it makes me feel really awkward. <laughs> And, and so it's, we're not surprised when John runs to hear that Jesus is alive. After all, he stayed with Jesus until the very bitter end. Why wouldn't he want to know what happened to the body of his teacher and savior? 
And so because John is the faithful witness, the source of irreplaceable knowledge for belief in the gospel, he finds himself in the bodiless tomb with the linen cloths wrapped up. We know people like this in church today. These are the people who, no matter how much uh, that one child runs all over the church during the sermon, we still know there's a great future for them in a cross-country running or, you know, the one that makes the most noise during the anthem. They're going to be great on the soundboard when they're a little bit older. You know, that one uh, child that seems to talk all throughout the sermon. Well, you know, they're going to be a great orator someday, a politician, a salesperson, right? These are those happy, um, never down, always hopeful, see the future for what it can be, glasses half full. They are the John who believes. They're the faithful witness. These are also the people who see uh, uh, service opportunities in broken down playgrounds and faded fellowship halls. These are the people who require no proof that eternal life trumps death and smile inwardly every time they hear the word resurrection. I'm not saying that you all are Johns. I'm not saying that you have to be Johns, but can I get an amen that there are people out there who act like that? Thank you. And these are the people that, as much as they might annoy us, their boundless optimism and faithful response, their refusal to face the facts as we see them, we still secretly cheer them on because we know that's that. That's that faith. That's that hope. That's that grace. That's that abounding love that we're all looking for. It's a good thing, even if we want to trip them occasionally. And then secondly, I want to lift out Peter. Peter runs. Now, why does Peter run? There are a lot of reasons why Peter could have run. He could have run to the tomb clearly out of simple jealousy that John got the drop on him. Peter could be running out of guilt because he has run from Jesus throughout Holy Week, avoiding Jesus, denying Jesus. He could be running out of guilt. What if he is alive? It means something completely different to Peter than it does to John. To John, it means new life. To Peter, it means accountability. Peter could run for other reasons as well. Uh, Peter could run out of uh, jealousy. Peter could run out of uh, boasting his loyalty to the Lord. Uh, Peter could run out of a hopeful curiosity. You see, Peter was one of those disciples that was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Maybe Peter's there to say, ha, maybe he can do it again. Do it again, Lord. Let's see. Peter has that kind of personality of enthusiasm. I don't know why I was named who I was. Many of us live with Peters, or, or maybe we are folk who are like Peter. We have a complex of emotions. We harbor petty jealousies. We are still wondering how scores will be settled. But oh my goodness, when the moment comes, we are all in and all there. It may take us a moment to work through our resentment. It may take a moment for us to recommit ourselves. But Peter is so much all of us, so much all of us as we try to figure out what are we running from? And what are we running to? Peter runs. And lastly, 
Mary speaks. Mary speaks. She, she shows up at the tomb after her, her friend, her teacher, um, has died. She is weeping for what is gone. She goes to the tomb less to prepare the body and more to have one last touch, one last goodbye before all change happens. She is so overwhelmed with grief that she cannot even notice the otherworldly angels who are speaking to her. I want you to stop for a moment and think about how much, I mean, we've all had that moment when uh, our emotions have clouded our perception. But I have to say, if there's two, not just one, not just one angel, but there are two angels, boy, howdy. I hope I can see that they're there. And so much so that he, she, for, uh, she mistakes her teacher for the gardener. It's a powerful thing when she finally sees Jesus, the risen Christ, before her. And what does Jesus do? He says, go and tell everyone else. You see, I really think in the same way that we're all a little bit of Peter, God's calling us all to be a little bit of Mary. Uh, scholars often remind us that the resurrection narratives are always commissioning stories. There are always stories that send believers out into the world to tell everyone that death is not the last word. You know, let's be honest here. If Mary had not said yes to the commission, we wouldn't be here. I mean, who would have told the story? Every resurrection narrative is an opportunity for a commissioning. It's wonderful. If, if Mary hadn't have told the story, then Easter would have been just a reunion story with tears and hugs all around. No hope, no grace, no salvation. However, Mary obeys, and she fights the impulse to cling to what's familiar, and she runs to tell the story. Friends, I wonder, have you ever been in that place? Have you ever been in that place that's so dark, so dim, so off that only a miracle will turn it around. And even then, a miracle was a long shot. I want to encourage you if God's speaking to you through this message on the back of the bulletin or the order of worship, you can find the for this week section, which asks some questions about that amazing way in which God sometimes delivers. I wonder in that dark place, in that difficult time, would you be like me? Would you run? Not sure if you're running to a rescue or running from a danger. Whether you're running metaphorically, sometimes we run by filling our lives with everything else that we don't need. Sometimes we run by sitting still, <laughs> sitting still but still doing things. Double screening, watching the TV and while we're on Facebook, playing video games to our heart's delight, doing all those things that crowd out the silence because in the midst of the silence, the darkness comes back in. Do you run like I run? Running. You know, the difference between our running and the running described in our scripture this morning is that we run from something, but Peter, John, and Mary are running to something. I gotta be honest with you, resurrection is a foreign experience. Our pop culture has a hard time understanding how Jesus comes back from the dead, so much so that millennials casually and humorously talk about Jesus as the strangest zombie they ever knew. Resurrection is a strange experience. 
Resurrection can be off-putting in our do-it-yourself, self-help culture of North America. We so longingly want to go to Lowe's or Home Depot because you can do it, we can help. Doesn't include Jesus though. We live in a world where having to wait for a resurrection in the midst of death just doesn't work with our DNA. What's difficult about resurrection is that it's only something that you can have faith in. You can't join the Kickstarter early and get extra privileges. You can't find it on eBay at a discount. You cannot um, get enough likes on your Facebook page to warrant a little bit of resurrection in your life. Resurrection is only something that you can have faith in. Faith is that hope of things to come when nothing gives you an indication of it. It's that willingness to see the world through the eyes of a God who is not afraid of death, not against risking it all, especially for those he loves, and he loves you. I wonder if you're in need of help I mean, maybe you're not uh, needing rescue. Maybe you're not um, floating in the midst of the ocean. Maybe you're not uh, in all of those uh, traditional ways of thinking about rescue. But I wonder if you're in a place and you need help, I want you to know that you can stop running. You've come to a place that you can call home, to a place filled with people who love a God who sometimes it takes three days, but takes dead things and makes them alive. When there was no hope, Jesus brings hope. And so I want you to know you can rest here. We'd be happy to share this home with you as together we welcome new life in each of us. Friends, we serve a God that believes in second chances and new life. We believe in a God who doesn't coach from the sidelines, but believes in carrying the game on his shoulders. Please forgive me for the very football narrative. I needed a basketball win in, but it didn't work out either. We believe in a God of resurrection. So maybe you are um, the John in the story. You believed, but now you have some doubts. This can be a home for you. Maybe you're a Peter with all of those emotions, not sure why you're running to beat John, to get to a place where Jesus is only gonna hold you accountable. This can be your home. And maybe you're a Mary. A Mary who's still debating, still negotiating, still bartering with God about whether you're gonna let go of what you know and you can hold and you can feel even if it is something that is dead and gone. And instead, take up the commission and share with others the new life. This can be your home. Chapelwood is a place where we encourage people to take their next step in their faith journey with Christ. And sometimes that next step is to quit running from something and to start walking towards a new thing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.